0: Yes, indeed, I'm the seventh Special Rapporteur on Torture. In fact, it's the second oldest of the independent mandates uh, that exist within the UN system, and the first woman to occupy the position in nearly 40 years. So, in a way, it's a breakthrough appointment, and I hope that I'll be able to represent the voices of women and girls who are victims of torture and inhuman and degrading treatment, as well as advocates that have spent tireless years advocating for the rights of women and girls, especially in this context. I will take a three-pronged approach to the mandate. The first, I want to tackle root causes of torture and inhuman treatment with a view to prevent further incidents occurring or patterns emerging. The second uh, is to find uh, remedies uh, for victims and accountability for victims and survivors. And the third area is to promote international law and to reinforce the absolute prohibition against torture.
1: The first milestone of your mandate is to, to present the first report to the General Assembly. Actually, you devoted the first part of the introduction as the understanding torture causes, consequences, and context. And among the first observations, and you have said, uh, the absolute prohibition against torture and other um, forms of ill-treatment is universally accepted. However, this is still a fragile right and the practice of torture persists. Why is this happening?
0: It's a very good question. The absolute prohibition on torture has been prohibited for a very long time. Uh, It's one of the first rights to feature in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948, after the Second World War and the egregious practices that occurred in that uh, context. And, in fact, it, in a way, and unfortunately, permeates many aspects of our lives. We see it in the context of police violence, racism with uh, police in a number of uh, countries, and perhaps a growing, unfortunately, growing number of countries. We see in armed conflict, in some ways, unlimited cruelty being perpetrated by soldiers and uh, mercenaries and militias and others against civilians. And it also permeates into the areas of violence against women where the state fails to uh, respond and to prevent acts of violence against women children. But I think what has developed over time is this understanding that although the original idea of torture was perceived, especially in the Convention Against Torture, from the dictatorships in South America and Latin America during the 1970s and 80s, where political opponents were the targets uh, of torture. What we now understand torture to be is that it's much more widespread than that, and especially people in marginalized and disadvantaged communities are quite often at a heightened risk of being subjected to this type of uh, ill-treatment. So it's multi-pronged, and my mandate, I hope to tackle a range of those uh, issues, also, of course, in collaboration with other stakeholders.
1: Another remark that is quite catchy in your report is that uh, you said the majority of the incidents that fall within the class of prohibited conduct are everyday Mm. uh, or routine forms of inhuman or degrading treatment. So that just reminds me of something that you have referred to, that's police violence. And we know there is an incident that does not date back too long, that is Black Lives Matter, which originated from overuse of the force of the police, and then it has a ripple effects all over the world. Mm. This is probably a very good case study for raising awareness among the general public about our fight against the torture. And if this kind of, we so-called, minor conducts left unchecked, uh, whether it will like inflict um, the negative effects on our societies and individuals, especially those vulnerable and marginalized groups.
0: Look, the George Floyd killing was, I think, a watershed moment for the United States, but also it did have this ripple effect, and not just the ripple effect of kind of looking at police conduct, but also the sympathy that was expressed globally. Now, there's been a history of these types of, uh, when there's an interaction between a state authority and a citizen, there's always the risk. But what? Well, We want to get to a point is that the police are well-trained, that they know how to de-escalate, that citizens have rights also of freedom of expression, of freedom of assembly, and the exercise of those rights should not be a threat to police authority, but that the police have a special role to play in our protection and in the protection of human rights. But they must do it in a manner that makes sure they don't step over the line into inhuman treatment, excessive use of force, and in the worst cases, torture. The majority of forms of prohibited conduct are what I've described as everyday and sometimes routine ill treatment. And the prison context is a microcosm of these types of harms. So it can be that there's a deprivation of food, or water in a prison, or inadequate levels, or the rooms in the prison are too small, or there are these old prisons that haven't been adapted to modern forms. And so on a daily basis, there's, you know, inhuman treatment being meted out. And what I want to emphasize, and I emphasize with the states, is we shouldn't underestimate the impact of the minor, so-called minor forms of assaults or minor deprivations, because in fact, they ultimately lead to and are cumulatively held uh, to be forms of torture.
1: And another setting for the occurrence of this kind of misconduct I would like to talk about is Conflicts, which is also quite relevant in the state of the current world, so have we ever concerned that the parties to the uh, conflicts would like weaponize the allegations for the torture to turn against each other and to win over a certain kind of legal or moral high standard?
0: So the question of. Torture and inhuman treatment in conflict is a very real one. There are many conflicts in the world, unfortunately recently we've seen interstate conflict which has been generally a conflict of the past and now we see today with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the conflict that is ongoing there. Uh, But in many other conflicts there is an ethnic dimension and a race dimension and a resource and economic kind of uh, dimension to some of these uh, conflicts when they're internal conflicts. And I've worked in a a number of uh, conflict zones and my real sense is that, you know, torture and inhuman treatment of others. When it's got a discriminatory basis doesn't just appear in conflict. In fact it's triggered by the conflict and there are often circumstances pre-existing that conflict that either justifies the treatment of the other, of someone from another ethnic group, in a way that would not be acceptable in peacetime, but this kind of, the chaos of conflict allows some of these harms to kind of percolate up and then become accepted by the authorities in the worst-case scenarios. On the other hand, there's also deliberate and directed forms of torture where soldiers and others, either given carte blanche to do what they want to do because they know there will be no repercussions, um, or there's some direction. We saw this definitely in the Rwandan and Bosnian conflicts of the 1990s, where you know the underlying nugget of the conflict was, in fact, ethnic relationships. And I think that's a very sad state of the world. We wouldn't have torture if we accepted everyone for who they are, allow them to live the life they wish to lead without public or private forms of harassment, abuse, or torture. So yes, certainly the context of conflict will be a focus and also, of course, that means the conduct of military and plus, of course, remedies and uh, accountability after the conflict ends.
1: Another context that you have uh, referred to is actually our dealing with climate change, especially during our design and implementation of mitigation and adaptation measures. What are your major concerns?
0: The first part of my report was on the causes consequences and context of torture so we understand the various dimensions in which it touches our lives and it's impossible to not think also in the climate change context and although it's only a small phrase that I put in uh, the report it was to kind of trigger the minds of state authorities that when they are adapting to climate change when they are putting in measures to mitigate the effects of climate change that they think about the rights of human beings and that they do these in a way that does not cause pain or suffering, which is the definition of torture, to those individuals. So one can think about compulsory relocation programs that they must be carried out generally with consent uh, in a humane manner, taking into account the rights, etc. that where people are moved to that the conditions in which they live will allow them to have a livelihood and to live a dignified uh, life. So uh, although that's an undeveloped part of the report, it was meant to kind of provoke states to be also thinking about the absolute prohibition of torture and inhuman treatment uh, within the various contexts in which we're currently operating and the biggest threats and one of those is climate change.